Jesus is the only answer to jihad and Isa, that's the Arabic word for Jesus, and the only answer to Isis. The Bible is the only answer to the Quran. Daniel 7 verse 27, 1 Peter 1 verse 7. Writing about the monumental problem produced by Trinitarianism and the Church Councils, Dr. Martin Werner of Bern University wrote, The Catholic theologians could certainly prove by means of Scripture the distinction of the Son's personality from that of God the Father. But the Catholic theologians landed themselves in a dilemma as soon as they sought to prove against the modalists, the oneness people who say that the Father is the Son, as soon as they started to try to prove a correspondingly clear-cut biblical doctrine concerning the agreement of the dogma of the deity of the Father and Son with monotheism, for according to the New Testament witnesses, in the teaching of Jesus and the Apostles, relative to the monotheism of the Old Testament and Judaism, there had been no element of change whatsoever. Mark chapter 12, verse 29, recorded the confirmation by Jesus himself without any reservation of the supreme monotheistic confession of faith of Israelite religion in its complete form. The attempts of the so-called Orthodox to demonstrate the agreement of their dogma of two divine persons with monotheism remained seriously uncertain and contradictory. They fell into the doctrine of two gods. That is, if the Son's own personality was at the same time emphasized over against the Father, the most potent cause of all the difficulties, dilemma, and sophistry of the situation was the deficiency of the scriptural evidence. None of the contending parties could obtain from Scripture a clear and decisive argument for the solution of the problem of the reconciliation between an unlimited monotheism and the distinction of the Son's personality from the Father. That's from Martin Werner's book, The Formation of Dogma, written in 1959. I maintain, therefore, that Christianity is the only world religion which begins by discarding its own founder's creed. Write to the newspapers about this, or blog about this everywhere. The International Critical Commentary on First Peter confesses it would be rash to conclude that Peter identified Yahweh with Christ. No such identification can be clearly made out in the New Testament. And here he cites Hort. We are not to suppose says the International Critical Commentary on First Peter, we are not to suppose that the apostles identified Christ with Yahweh. There were passages which made this impossible. Psalm 110 verse 1, Malachi 3 verse 1, and Genesis 
That's a quotation from Dr. Biggs, Regis Professor of Ecclesiastical History at Oxford, in the International Critical Commentary on First Peter. I will never forget the chorus of horrified gasps from the audience of 400 at the cult awareness meeting held in Atlanta, when Atlanta Bible College had moved from Oregon, Illinois, to Morrow, Georgia, in the early 1990s. Christian Radio had announced that a new cult was in town and it was going to be exposed and its lethal heresies. I wondered if this might possibly be us, but I wasn't sure we were that important. But it was us. We were the new cult to be avoided on pain of losing salvation. The gasps of the 400 were the reaction to the statement of the presenter, David Krogh and Anthony, they said, are not cult figures like Jim Jones. They're not going to poison their flock, literally, but they are cult figures in the theological and philosophical sense, and Anthony does not even believe in the pre-existence of Jesus. The ladies in the audience, being kinder and more sympathetic to our plight, rushed up to me at the end and begged me to bow my head and believe in the Trinity and be saved. The next day I was there handing out my booklet on Who is Jesus, but was immediately warned that I was not permitted to do this on the turf of Trinitarians. One would have to be very slow not to see that the spirit of Trinitarianism is utterly hostile to us. Have we forgotten about the murder of Servetus by John Calvin and the murder of many others? I hope not. Evil is intentional and aggressive. And unless we oppose this with equal intentionality and aggressiveness, we lose out. We run the awful risk of being ashamed of the words of Jesus. The late Eric Chang, after he had as a so-called professional, vigorously taught the Trinity for decades, was one who was transparently honest in his frank admission that Trinitarianism is polytheism and that the church had altered the meaning of the word God. We remember how words like marriage have undergone a change of meaning too. We gain help from some leading Trinitarian scholars. For example, this admission from a Trinitarian, Dr. Colin Brown. He said, it's a simple fact and an undeniable historical fact that several major doctrines that now seem central to the Christian faith, such as the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the nature of Christ, were not present in a full and self-defined generally accepted form until the 4th and 5th centuries. If they are essential today, as all of the orthodox creeds and confessions assert, 
It must be because they are true. If they are true, then they must always have been true. They cannot have become true in the 4th and 5th century. But if they are both true and essential, how can it be that the early church took centuries to formulate them? The system, therefore, is condemned from one's own mouth. Eric Chang, from his excellent introduction to The Only True God, a must-read for all who espouse the one God of Jesus, Trinitarianism speaks of three persons who are all equally God and then goes on to claim a place in monotheism by changing the definition of God into a divine nature, substance or Godhead in which the three persons all share, which means, of course, that this Godhead is not at all identical to the one and only personal God of the Bible. I ask this, is it sheep stealing to invite a Baptist to a Unitarian congregation? Or does a Baptist worship a different God? Where there is belief in more than one person who is God, that is polytheism by definition. What we need to realize is that Trinitarianism is in essence, therefore, a different faith from biblical monotheism. So we're not dealing here with a relatively simple matter of biblical interpretation, but with a far more profound matter of biblical faith. In other words, what is at stake is true or false faith, not just true or false interpretation of the Bible. True or false faith, according to the scriptures, is a matter of life or death. The situation is that it is not the scripture which governs the belief or dogma, but the dogma which governs the interpretation. This is usually done quite unconsciously, as I know from my own personal experience, because of the belief that Scripture has to be understood in this way. That is, we believe that this was the only right way to understand it. It was, of course, never anyone's intention to deceive ourselves or others. It was our faith which determined the way we understood things. Hence, as we've seen it, it is at root a matter of faith. That's a quotation from Eric Chang in his book, The Only True God. I note that Paul wrote, and I quote, Evil men will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. God will give them over to a spirit of deception because they did not receive a passion for truth in order to be saved. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 10. Failure to believe the truth is equivalent, according to Paul, to taking pleasure in wickedness. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 12. Their eyes they have closed, otherwise they could repent and be saved. So said Jesus 
in the parable of the sower. Matthew 13, verse 25, quoting Isaiah. See also Mark chapter 4, verses 11 to 12, and Luke 8, 12. Another quotation from Eric Chang. He says, During the nearly four decades of serving as pastor, church leader, and teacher of many who would enter the full-time ministry, I taught Trinitarian doctrine with great zeal, as many who know me can testify. But I note that zeal, without knowledge, does not save anyone. Romans 10 verse 2. Trinitarianism was what I drank in with my spiritual milk when I was a spiritual infant. Later in my biblical and theological studies, my interest focused on Christology, which I pursued with considerable intensity. My life centered on Jesus Messiah. I studied and sought to practice his teaching with the utmost devotion. I did indeed worship one God, and that one God was Jesus, the one God revealed in the Old Testament, namely Yahweh. Yahweh was in practice replaced by the God Jesus Christ, or God the Son. About three years ago, in 2006 that is, I was pondering this question, how can the gospel be made known by us? I discovered that my Christianity was accompanied by some kind of prejudice against the Muslims, which had to be overcome, if I was to understand them and reach out to them. Also, I realized that the moment I said anything about the Trinity or said that Jesus is God, all communication with them would cease abruptly. The same, of course, is true of the Jews. So how can they be reached? Jesus cannot return because the gospel cannot be preached to these nations as long as it is Trinitarian. One thing that I could see was that I needed to reevaluate whether or not we Christians are really monotheists. When I examined my own thoughts, I too realized that my Trinitarianism was at root incompatible with biblical monotheism. When I first faced the challenge of reevaluating my Trinitarianism in the light of the Bible and then sharing that light with all who wish to see it, I thought I was alone in taking the stand. But when preparing this manuscript for publication, I was surprised to come across the work of the renowned theologian Hans Kung and to discover that he had already declared that the doctrine of the Trinity is unbiblical in his large work with the title Christianity, Essence, History and Future, written in 1994. Trinitarianism, Eric Chang goes on to say, also insists on making the Spirit of the Lord a distinct third person from Yahweh. For anyone somewhat familiar with the Old Testament, this is something strange. J. 
Jews must wonder whether Christians really have any understanding of the Bible at all. To argue the spirit of Yahweh, God's spirit, is a person distinct from him, is like saying that the spirit of man, man's spirit, is a distinct individual who lives in you or with you as the first. This might be perceived by someone who suffers from schizophrenia, but to suggest that this is the case with God is lunacy, if not something worse like blasphemy. So says Eric Chang on page 21. Chang was becoming part of a noble history. To Michael Servetus and the Dutch Anabaptists led by Adam Pastor, as well as to the whole community of Polish Anabaptists, the Trinity was a deviation from biblical monotheism, a mistaken attempt to translate apostolic belief in one God, the Father, as in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, John 17, 3, and Ephesians 4, 6, to translate that biblical Unitarianism into the language of Greek metaphysics, were still the creeds and the Council of Nicaea and Chalcedon were used in coercive and destructive ways to force belief in these dogmas. This was all the more regrettable since the terminology of the discussion on Christology was itself a jumble of ambiguous terms, in sharp contrast to the Bible's plainly Unitarian creed. The freedom to explore, apart from the tyranny of dogma, represented, for example, by the Athanasian creed, which threatens death to deviance from Orthodox Trinitarianism, this led to the rediscovery of a frequently forgotten element in the church's presentation of Jesus, his being a human being. It was widely admitted that traditional understandings of Jesus had often suffered from a latent docetism, that's the belief that Jesus only seemed to be human, which for John the Apostle signaled very antichrist. As we read in 1 John 4, verse 2 and 2 John 7. Moreover, traditional formulations about Christ seem to demonstrate a fondness for a particular interpretation of John 1, verse 1, to the exclusion of the very human portraits presented by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. In fact, the Gospel of John had been allowed a more than proportionate influence in the formation of Christology. Could this have been because the style of John's writing, while actually very Hebraic, appealed to the speculative Greek mind and could be easily misunderstood and distorted by Gentiles? A local Bible collector 
who is fascinated by the translation of John 1 verse 1, compare the very frequent emails to me, he says this, yes, Antony, but have you read, have you ever read John 1 verse 1? These emails have provided me with 300 translations spanning centuries of John 1 verse 1, which correct the mistaken impression that John intended two persons in John 1 verse 1. Now this honest dissenter from the Church of England, David Watson, this clergyman resigned his orders in the Church of England. He said this, a sympathetic study of traditional Jewish religion can reveal the extent to which the modern English Christian gives a meaning to the words of the New Testament different from that which was in the minds of the Jewish writers. Greek was the language they used to convey the universal Christian message, but their mode of thinking was to a large extent Hebraic. For a full understanding, it is necessary for the modern Christian not only to study the Greek text, but to sense the Hebraic idea which the Jewish writers sought to convey in Greek words. He went on to say, I cannot claim to have become very skilled in this, but made enough progress to discover how greatly I had misinterpreted the Bible in the past. Like all ordained Christian ministers, I had spoken dogmatically, authoritatively, from a pulpit which no one may occupy without license from a bishop. And much of what I had said had been misleading because my own mind was incapable of giving a correct interpretation of the book, which I was authorized to expound. For me, the realization of this fact made nonsense of the distinction between clergy and laity and was the main cause of my relinquishment of my orders in the Church of England. He went on, in describing my own intellectual deficiencies and the process by which I discovered my inability to grasp the meaning of the Bible across the vast linguistic gulf separating me from its Jewish writers, I can surely claim to write with first-hand knowledge. From what I know of the clergy in general, I see no reason for supposing that I was peculiar in suffering from this particular deficiency. In fact, the authority of the Protestant ministry as a whole the claim to be able to understand the Bible and expound it as the Word of God is, in my view, a vast confidence trick. I'm not accusing the clergy of being individually fraudulent or even insincere. The confidence trick is collective. Individually, those who engage in it are themselves deceived by it. Just as when I began to expound the Bible from pulpits, I was fully confident that I was able to give a correct interpretation. 
Some may believe, he went on, that the right of ordination itself bestows divine grace sufficient to overcome any liability to mislead a congregation through an incorrect interpretation. If this view is held, however, it must be reconciled with the indisputable fact that the Christian ministry as a whole has produced a large number of different and often irreconcilable versions of the Christian faith, all supposed to have been derived from the same biblical record. Any claim that training and ordination produce the only authentic Christian teaching is fraudulent. I add this for excellent information on church history and dogma. See Sean Finnegan's Introduction to Church History at Dan Gill's site, which is 21st Century Reformation. Org. David Watson went on. He said, The 39 articles of the Church of England state specifically, in no uncertain terms, that true Christian doctrine is derived not from the Church's councils and traditions, but from the Bible alone. Anglo-Catholics believe the very opposite. Consequently, when one of them, after induction to a benefice, reads the articles publicly and declares his assent to them, he virtually commits perjury. It is, however, legalized perjury. That's a quotation from David Watson's Christian Myth and Spiritual Reality, written in 1967. We propose that the tendency to obscure the human being, Christ, the only Christ there is, arose in opposition to the central and essentially simple New Testament affirmation of Jesus as Messiah. Matthew 16, verses 16 to 18. The second Adam, supernaturally conceived, yet coming into existence in the womb of his mother. This view of Jesus' origin we may, with Raymond Brown, usefully call Conception Christology. That's a, a statement from Raymond Brown's Birth of the Messiah. Raymond Brown insists that Matthew and Luke know nothing of a literal pre-existence of the Messiah. They could not, therefore, have been Trinitarians in the traditional sense. They could not therefore join a Trinitarian church. Jesus' own conception for them is his coming into being, his beginning to exist. The germ of later Trinitarian theology should be sought elsewhere than in these gospel accounts. Should it be ascribed to John and Paul or to a distortion of their writings caused by the speculative tendency of Greek philosophy. This influence of Greek philosophy was apparently already at work when John, writing at the end of the first century, pointedly emphasizes against an incipient Gnostic docetism. He emphasizes 
the human Jesus. 1 John 4, verse 2, 2 John 7. John says that Jesus came en sarki, that is, as a human person, not into a human body, which is a very different matter. John seems in his first epistle to be correcting an emerging misunderstanding of his Logos doctrine in the Gospel. John 1, verses 1 to 3. John says it was the impersonal, eternal life which was with the Father. Verse John 1, verse 2, before the birth of Jesus, not the Son himself pre-existing. In other words, John intended us to understand that when the Word became flesh, John 1, 14, the transition was not that of a divine person becoming a human person, but of an impersonal personification. Compare with that wisdom in Proverbs 8, verses 22 and 30, as to say the Word, lowercase w, the Word of God, becoming embodied as a human being. In John 1, verse 5, the light, which is neuter, has become, in John 1.10, the light, which is there, a masculine person, afton, and not neuter, afto. The subsequent development of Trinitarian thinking was encouraged by a misunderstanding of the Hebrew notion of word by Justin Martyr. For John, the word Logos signified not a second person in the Godhead, but the self-expressive activity of God. Justin Martyr, who as a Platonist had been accustomed to thinking of the Logos as an intermediary between God and man, not unnaturally reads Jesus back into the Logos of John 1.1. 1, 1 and thinks of him as the pre-existing son, a person numerically different from and subordinate to the one God. Justin then proceeds to find Jesus in the Old Testament, even identifying him with the angel of the Lord before his incarnation. Yet even in Justin, we are a long way from the final creedal formulation of the Council of Chalcedon. The important point to be noted is that developed Trinitarianism cannot be traced back to the New Testament through the earliest church fathers. These fathers always thought of Christ as subordinate to the one God. Some believed that the Son had a beginning. The point at which Greek philosophy was able to interfere with biblical teaching was the Gospel of John and particularly his prologue. A misunderstanding of John's Gospel led to the projection of Jesus back onto the pre-existing Logos. Thus the simple Messianic Christology of the Synoptics, Matthew, Mark and Luke, 
and also of John, provided he is not read with a speculative Greek perspective, that simple Messianic Christology was obscured. It has been the task of the Cambridge myth of God incarnate theologians to raise the question as to whether, and I quote, talk of Jesus' pre-existence ought probably in most, perhaps in all cases, to be understood on the analogy of the pre-existence of the Torah to indicate the eternal divine purpose being achieved through him, as in 1 Peter 1 verse 20, rather than pre-existence of a fully personal kind. That's a quotation from Morris Wiles in his book, The Remaking of Christian Doctrine, 1974. Compare with that Wiles' observation in The Myth of God Incarnate, where he says, Incarnation, in its full and proper sense, is not something directly presented in Scripture. John Biddle, father of English anti-Trinitarians, and then more courage from the past. John Biddle, 1615 to 1662, educated in classics and philosophy at Oxford, embarked on what he called an impartial search of the scriptures after he began to question received church doctrine. From 1641, when he was aged 26, to 1645, Biddle was headmaster of Crypt School in Gloucester. It was during this period that his close study of the New Testament caused him to become disaffected with the doctrine of the Trinity. The matter was of such serious nature that the magistrates issued an order for his arrest and imprisonment. Following a debate with Archbishop Usher of chronology fame, John Biddle summed up the result of his study of early Christianity. He said, the fathers of the first two centuries, or thereabouts, when the judgments of Christians were yet free and not enslaved with the determinations of councils, they asserted the Father only to be the one God. Biddle complained that the Greek philosophical language of the creeds was, and he said, first hatched by the subtlety of Satan in the heads of Platonists to pervert the worship of the true God. The British Parliament lost no time in ordering that Biddle's work be burned. In 1648, the British government passed what has been called the Draconian Ordinance for the Punishment by Death of Blasphemies and Heresies, which were aimed at Biddle's claim that Trinitarian doctrine introduces three gods and so subverts the unity of God so frequently inculcated in Scripture. 
The Athanasian Creed is no answer to the problem. For, as Biddle said, who is there? If at least he dare make use of reason in his religion, who seeth not that this is as ridiculous as if one should say, Peter is an apostle, James an apostle, John an apostle, yet there are not three apostles, but one apostle. In 1655, Biddle was committed to Newgate Prison for, and I quote, publicly denying that Jesus Christ was the Almighty or the Most High God. Supporters of Biddle were quick to point out that all the Christians must be considered guilty of death by Parliament's latest attempt to suppress anti-Trinitarianism because, and I quote here from Biddle, he who says that Christ died says that Christ was not God, for God could not die. But every Christian says that Christ died, therefore every Christian says that Christ was not God. A petition for the release of Biddle described him as, and I quote, a man, though differing from most of us in many great matters of faith, yet by reason of his diligent study of the Holy Scripture, sober and peaceable in his conversation, which some of us have intimate and good knowledge of, and we cannot but judge every way capable of the liberty promised in the government. Though only 47 years old, Biddle had spent nearly 10 years of his life in prison for his insistence that God was a single person. He died in prison in 1662 as a victim of odium theologicum and the filthy conditions of the place in which he was lodged. A sympathetic biographer wrote of Biddle's great zeal for promoting holiness of life and manners, for this was always his end and design in what he taught. He valued not his doctrines for speculation but for practice. That information is taken from H.J. McLaughlin's Socinianism in 17th century England, written in 1951. I want to remind you that the Council of Nicaea pronounced a formal anathema of excommunication and damnation on all, and thus all of you, who would not affirm the Trinity. That same cruel doctrine remains on the official books of evangelical and other churches. It is good to be aware of this if we attend in that environment. Does the pastor know about this? Does he care? Do we care about eight million Jehovah's Witnesses who believe that Jesus was an angel and still is, though their founder, Russell, 
did not, in fact, believe this. There's a large potential ministry to ex-Jehovah's Witnesses. They need not become agnostic, atheist, or Trinitarian. The scene I'm depicting is very tough, I admit. My attempt is to be honest with the words of Scripture and avoid fatal compromise, which is all too easy to fall into. For that point, see Mark 8, verse 38, for a due warning from Jesus. But then Jesus seems to have set the bar not impossibly high, but very high. In Matthew 7, verse 25, he warned of false prophets, that is, false religious teachers, and went on to say in that connection that, and I quote, multitudes will say on that future day, when we encounter Jesus face to face, Lord, Lord, did we not teach and preach in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many great miracles in your name? Only to be rejected as not having been Christian. The problem would seem to be the destructive lack of knowledge mentioned by both Isaiah 5 verse 13 and Hosea 4 verse 6. After all, Isaiah chapter 53, 11 has been almost entirely ignored or twisted. That text reads like this. By his knowledge, my servant the Messiah will make many right, make them righteous. And Daniel 12 verse 3 says, those who have insight will shine brightly like the expanse of the heaven, and those who make many wise by their knowledge will shine like the stars forever and ever. We must be sensitive also to Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. The same point is made clearly in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 24, and Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15, Malachi 2, verse 17, and Jeremiah 24, verse 14. Jeremiah stood alone and warned that, and I quote, in the last days, you will clearly understand it, I am against the prophets, Jeremiah said, quoting God's words. The prophets who have prophesied false dreams, they speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord, and they lead my people astray by their falsehoods and reckless boasting. Yet I did not send them or command them, nor did they furnish the people the slightest benefit. You have perverted the words of the living God. See for that quotation, Jeremiah chapter 23. Peace of mind from John 17 verse 3. What we believe should give us rest and peace. I found this in a book on holistic health, 
Now there is a specific feeling which has for millennia tantalized us with the promise of doing away with anxiety once and for all, and that is the feeling of certainty. Certainties are warm, dry shelters in the storm. Even certainties of the worst type commonly relieve us of the shapeless dreads of anxiety. There's a peace in not having to wonder and struggle after answers anymore. And that seems to be able to surpass the fear of doom itself. Anxiety can cloud my thoughts and suspend me in a helpless paralysis, while a certainty lends me a basis for decision and action. That's from Dean Jewan's book, Job's Body, written in 1998. John 17.3 is exactly that. Compared with the nightmare of confusion and complexity and often vagueness, which is Trinitarianism. So find your peace in the beautiful statement in John 17, verse 3, where Jesus said, You, Father, are the only one who is true God. See the introduction to my translation of the New Testament, the One God, the Father, One Man, Messiah translation with commentary. See that translation for some more interesting and revealing quotations which can empower us and give us certainty. Truth is life imparting, energy imparting. First Thessalonians 2 verse 13, where you note the Greek word energite, to energize. And believing what is false is like putting cyanide in your coffee. And everything depends on understanding and believing the seed or gospel of the kingdom of God. Matthew 13, Mark chapter 4, Luke 8, and 1 Peter 1 verse 22, which is the germ of immortality and thus the elixir of life and fountain of youth. Part 2. Now to my other topic, a dimension and component of the Abrahamic kingdom gospel message to which we have not paid, I think, anything like the attention which the Bible gives it. It is the issue of Christian hope and reward. I mentioned just a handful of texts on this large subject. In both cases, truth has been hiding behind obfuscating translation or failure to preach and teach the fullness of Scripture. Many churchgoers are exposed to a tiny fraction of the Bible. Jesus is utterly straightforward and real in his answer to Peter about what the apostles would get out of following Jesus as Messiah. What's in it for us? They asked in Matthew 19.27. First recall Jesus. The new era is so great that the lowest member of it, the one who is least in the kingdom of God, 
is greater than the greatest one of the previous era. That's the Net Bible on Matthew 11, 11. To be in the kingdom is to be greater than the greatest human person of the present age. I note that David became greater and greater because God was with him. 2 Samuel 5, verse 10. Jesus was to be great, Luke 1, 32 and 33, and his Davidic kingdom will have no end. Greatness is something to be desired on God's terms, of course. Jesus could have given a falsely spiritual, phony answer to the apostles' question in Matthew 19, 27. He could have talked about just serving God out of love with no expectation and leaving it at that. But he doesn't do that. Rather, he calls upon a massive theme of the whole Bible. Here are Jesus' words. In the new age, when the world is reborn, you who have followed me will be promoted to sit on 12 thrones to administer the 12 tribes of Israel. This was echoed by Paul with indignation that his church did not understand a very simple and basic truth. Paul said, don't you understand that the saints are going to manage the world? That's the Moffat translation correctly of 1 Corinthians 6 verse 2. This is exactly in keeping with Revelation chapter 1 verses 5 to 6, Revelation 2 verses 26 to 27, Revelation 3 verse 21, and Revelation 20 verse 1 to 6, which all say that world dominion is going to be in the hands of Jesus and also in the hands of the saints. Do you want to be like Jesus? Then listen to this. Jesus said, To him who overcomes and keeps my works to the end, I will give him power over the nations to rule them with a rod of iron and shatter them like clay vessels. Just as my Father gave me that same authority. All this is based on the massively important second psalm, which is really the head and chief psalm, where power over the nations to discipline them strongly will be given to the Messiah, whose kingdom authority will stretch to the ends of the earth. Compare with that Micah chapter 5, Verses 4 to 6. Psalm 2 provides a brilliant scene from the future when Jesus is installed in Jerusalem and people will be strongly advised to submit to him and to the saints. There are surviving people here, few people left, as Isaiah chapter 24, verse 6 says, forged. That verse, I may say, forged, perverted, and eliminated by Ellen White. In her book, The Great Controversy, she explains 
that the words few men are left do not apply. She leaves them out. It would be hard to imagine a greater interference with the gospel of the kingdom. But 23 million Seventh-day Adventists believe it on the basis of their prophetess, their guru. Helen G. White removed, in fact, the throne of David and of Jesus from that quotation in Isaiah chapter 24. Isaiah chapter 24, verse 6, was forged, perverted, and eliminated by Ellen White. But we see in that text there's a chance to repent and populate the new world of the kingdom even as mortals. Psalm 2, verse 9, about the rulership over the nations, is alluded to no less than three times in Revelation. Revelation 2, verses 26 and 27, Revelation 12, verse 5, and Revelation 19, verse 15. It's a key verse for Jesus and thus for us. The following sounds like a typical day in the coming kingdom. I quote, But the just Lord is in the midst of Jerusalem, and he will never do an unjust thing. Morning by morning he will bring out his judgment to the light, and it is not hidden, and he doesn't know anything about injustice by extortion, nor injustice in strife. That's a quotation from Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 5, from the Septuagint. Now to 1 Peter 1, verse 7, and Daniel 7, verse 27. Deuteronomy 26, verse 19, all of which verses have been hiding. 1 Peter 1, verse 7, the New Living Translation. Peter said, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is to be revealed to the whole world. The translator's translation renders that passage as follows. Gold perishes even though it has been through the refiner's fire when your faith has been proved, it is of much greater value than that, for it will bring you praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. The same passage in the contemporary English version, which says, This is necessary so that your faith may be found genuine. Your faith is more valuable than gold which will be destroyed, even though it is itself tested by fire. Your genuine faith will result in praise, glory, and honor for you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Where did Peter get this? Deuteronomy 26, verses 18 to 19, in the English Standard Version, reads as follows, And the Lord has declared today, that you, Israel, 
are a people for his treasured possession, as he has promised you, and that you are to keep all his commandments, and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all nations that he has made, and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God, as he promised. All this is based on the supremacy of Israel verses which are all over the Hebrew Bible, notably in Deuteronomy 26 and Isaiah chapters 40 to 66, especially Isaiah chapter 60 verse 12, the nation which will not serve you, Israel, will perish. First Peter calls on these Israel texts and applies them to the church. Exodus 19 verse 6, Israel are priests and kings. It is the church now who are to be priests and kings. First Peter 2 verse 9 and 10, Revelation 1 verse 6, Revelation 5 verse 10, and Revelation 20 verses 1 to 6. And the church is to be God's special treasure. See also Titus 2 verse 14, Deuteronomy 4 verses 20 to 26, Deuteronomy 7 verses 6 to 11, chapter 14 verse 2, chapter 26 verse 18, and Isaiah 62 12, as well as Isaiah 41 verses 11 to 13, 42 verse 6 and 7, 43 verse 6 and 7, Isaiah 45 verse 14, 46 verse 13, Isaiah 49 verse 6, and compare with that Acts chapter 13 verse 47. All this gives you the energizing vision of the future and the testimony of Jesus, his inspired prophetic word, which is called the spirit of prophecy in Revelation 19 verse 10. To take away the words of Jesus in Revelation is to lose out on life. Revelation 22 verses 18 to 20. Luther, I remind you, wrote that the book of Revelation is not a Christian book and no one knows what it means. 1 Peter 1 verse 7 is remarkable and hiding in many translations. Truth often hides in translation or a corrupted manuscript, as in the King James Version of 1 John 5 7, a completely spurious text, as is well known, also in 1 Timothy 6 verse 3 and 1 John 5 18 which should not be read in the King James Version. It is thought scandalous that the believers, the international church, should receive praise and honor and fame. Commentary, thankfully, is often smarter. The Cambridge Bible for Schools and Colleges by E.H. Plumtree, Dean of Wells, says, the context and the parallelisms with Romans 2 verse 7, which says to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor 
and immortality, and they gain the life of the age to come, those parallels make it certain that the praise and glory and honor in 1 Peter 1.7 refer to the praise and glory and honor which men and women will receive when sufferings rightly borne have done their work. Compare with that 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. Note that this will happen at the future revelation, the apocalypsis of Jesus. 1 Peter 1, verse 7 and 13. Thus, the so-called going to heaven when we die promoted tirelessly by that massive organization we call church, turns out to be very false and deceiving. The false idea is based on the erroneous teaching about the immortal soul, which must live on in heaven or an eternal torturing hellfire. Those caught in these deceptions are unable to say, and I quote, there's a lie in my right hand. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 20. They then, and I quote again, defraud the one in the right with meaningless arguments. Isaiah 29, verse 21. The glory and honor and fame, or renown, honor and beauty, which is the destiny of the faithful, is simply a repeat of Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 18. God will set you high above the nations which he has made for praise, fame, and honor, and that you shall be a consecrated people. Daniel 7 is the indispensable starting point for defining the heart of the gospel of the kingdom. In verse 18, the saints receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, for all ages to come. Verse 22 of Daniel 7 reads, Judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Most Holy One, and the time came, not, you note, a timeless eternity, but the time came, when the saints possessed the kingdom. Compare with that, blessed are the meek, they will possess the earth. Matthew 5, verse 5. Verse 27 says, Then the sovereignty and the dominion and greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. Their kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions will serve and obey them. Compare with that Revelation 3 verse 9, where the enemies of the church will be forced to bow down. So why would you want to go to heaven when Jesus will not be there? Blessed are the meek, for they will possess the land or the earth and dwell in it forever. That's a quotation from Jesus in Matthew 5, verse 5, alluding to Psalm 37, verses 9 to 11, 
verse 18, verse 22, verse 29, and verse 34. Are you ready for this destiny? Note the correct translation, obey them, that is the saints. Daniel 7, verse 27, preserved in the RSV, the Contemporary English Bible, the CJB, the GWN, NRSV, and the Tanakh Bible, also in Moffat, and the International Critical Commentary on Daniel. Our hope is the vision of the future theocracy, foreshadowed or actually predicted in the entire Old Testament. God appears to be so delighted with the prospect of future peace on earth when, and I quote, the whole world will be at peace and they break forth into singing. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 7. He's so thrilled with that idea that he dedicates most of Scripture to this topic. No wonder the whole hope of messianic peace and the cessation of all war, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, the end to ISIS, the end of paganism, has been so totally derailed by the grand mistake that heaven, when we die, is the object of faith. Don't be afraid, little flock, Jesus said, because your Father is delighted to give you the kingdom. Luke 12, verse 32. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, Matthew 5, verses 3 and 10. Kingdom of heaven, of course, never means a kingdom in heaven, but rather the kingdom of God which is coming from heaven to be established on the earth. The scene at the beginning of the millennium, which is the first stage of the future kingdom of God on earth, is exactly described by that famous Psalm 2. Nations unwilling to submit to Jesus and the saints will be eliminated. They are strongly advised to submit to the new theocratic government. The whole Old Testament is either a shadow or type, as in Judges and the Books of Kings, or a clear prophecy and vision of the great theocracy to come. Sixteen prophets transport you into the decisive time between the Great Tribulation and the arrival of Jesus with his glorified, immortalized saints. This is true greatness promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets and saints. See Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. It is the greatness lost by Adam and to be regained by Messiah Jesus. What is man that you care about him? and the Son of Man, that you take thought for him. You have made him a bit lower than the angels and crowned him with honor and glory. You put everything under his feet, Psalm 8. This is the storyline and plot of the whole Bible and also the Christian kingdom gospel. And the destiny of man in Christ is as follows. 
It is the economy of the future about which we are speaking. So says Hebrews chapter 2 verse 5, Isaiah chapter 51 verse 16, and Psalm 102 in the Greek Septuagint version. In that kingdom, the saints will be like holy angels as to immortality, and they will not be married or given in marriage. Luke chapter 20, verses 34 to 38. The two brothers who sought prime positions in the coming kingdom were not told that there is no such hierarchy. Mark chapter 10, verses 37 to 40. They were told that the positions could be achieved by a degree of suffering and that God is the one who makes these appointments. The one who does well with his or her talent is praised by Jesus. Well done, good and faithful servant. Take charge of and be in permanent authority over ten cities. Luke chapter 19, verse 17 and 19. Matthew 25, verses 21 to 23. Are you ready and prepared for this? Has the energy of this hope invaded your life? What happened to the least talented who produced nothing is a threat indeed. The worthless servant in the parable of the talents was hurled into outer darkness. Talents must be used in support of the Great Commission. As John said, we are all to strive for what he called a full reward, 2 John 8. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. The same trenchant warning was given to the church at Laodicea, where, as a recent speaker at Christian Workers' Seminary pointed out, Jesus did not observe the advice from the movie Bambi that if you can't say anything nice, don't say nothing at all. Jesus threatened the lukewarm with exclusion from salvation. The Philadelphia church in Revelation 3 verse 7 is the one to follow. Jesus said, I know your deeds. Look, I have placed an open door before you. Would that be the internet, perhaps? Which no one can shut. Because you have a little power and have kept my word. Word there meaning, of course, kingdom of God gospel and have not denied my name. Compare with that Acts 8 verse 12. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not to come and bow down. That's to say worship. Proskineo in Revelation 3 verse 9. Compare with that Isaiah chapter 45 verse 14 where the true Israel is actually supplicated or prayed to and bowed down to. I will make them bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. 
because you've kept the word of my perseverance, compare with that Luke 8 verse 15, I will also preserve you from the hour of testing, which is about to come on the entire world to test those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have, compare with that Luke chapter 8 verses 11 and 12, so that no one will take away your crown. Compare with that Romans 5 verse 17, 2 Timothy 2 12, Revelation 5 verse 10, Revelation 2 verse 26 and 27, Revelation 3 verse 21, and of course Revelation 20 verses 1 to 6, and 2 Timothy 4 1 to 2, where the Greek reads most easily, I solemnly declare to you, in the presence of God and of Messiah Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, I declare to you both his appearing and his kingdom. Preach that message. The kingdom destiny of the faithful is a massive Bible theme, and love and faith are based on, because of, and derived from hope. So we read in Colossians 1 verse 4.